Today we have two separate guests, and as a result, I bring you two words: prey and grey. Prey, spelled P-R-E-Y, in the form of those who feel hunted, and grey in the form of that matter which rests beneath your cranium. And by the way, our brains are actually pinky grey. All this and more. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my love, watching America. Oh my life, it's panic in America. Oh oh oh, oh. It's trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Day for the hunter, day for the prey. Day for the hunter, day for the prey. Day for the hunter, day for the As with dogs, it has been said that every hunter has his day. But some people long for a time when prey, in this case women, will have their day too, at least in the court of international opinion. I'm smiling from side to side because of our guest today on Watching America. My guest is Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, she has been with us pretty recently, and as a matter of fact, one of the most popular programs we've had. Again, I am absolutely thrilled to have Ayan Hirsi Ali and in particular because of her new book. Her new book is entitled Prey. Well, that needs a little bit of explanation. It is spelled P-R-E-Y. So let me begin, um, Ion, by uh, by asking you uh, why P-R-E-Y? It's ominous and uh, an arresting word. How did you come to decide on that title? I settled on that title because I took note of um, how women in Europe were being approached uh, by men uh, who are new to Europe. And these men come from countries where where women are seen as prey uh, unless they meet a particular code of conduct. I'm going to get more specific as we get into our conversation more. Um, but what I have in mind are the following scenes. That as a young woman or old woman or uh, any kind of woman, really, you would be out on the streets and you would encounter relatively young men uh, in twos and threes. and they wouldn't just see you as another person sharing the public space, but there would be that dynamic of hunting and there'd be cat calling, there'd be encircling. Uh, and at some point that would escalate to uh, various forms of harassment or what we call harassment uh, touching. Um, and then sometimes it gets worse. And the more I saw of this, the more I thought, the appropriate title is prey. And the women being preyed upon are not of any particular ethnicity or skin color or religion. They are all women who simply do not meet a certain code. 
And that code is called the modesty code. In many places where some of these men come from, the prevailing and governing code between men and women is that there are good women and there are bad women. And the good women are modest and they're virtuous. They cover themselves, they stay at home, they're good daughters and they're good wives, and they abide by the rules of that code. The women who refuse to do that or don't do it for whatever reason are regarded as prey, as, um, as bad women. Uh, and if they are harassed, if they are assaulted, then it's their own fault or it's the fault of the families and clans who fail to protect them. In psychological terms, um, Freud explored this, the, the, the idea of, of womanhood, um, the, the ideal of the woman almost being like a goddess, or conversely, may I invoke the term whore, prostitute, loose. Right. Um, for, for many of these people, it sounds to me as, as if in their minds, there's no shade of gray. Um, so you're either one or the other. Is that correct? That's correct. And if you are in Europe or America or in other Western countries, in the 21st century, we have populations who know of that history, their own history, where, yes, women were divided into either goddesses or virtuous mothers and versus the whores and the sluts and the harlots and things like that. But then as time went by, we now live in a context where at least in some of these European countries, the public space is not contested for women. So we make a distinction in, in Europe. Uh, this book is very much focused on Europe between violence, sexual violence against women perpetrated by an intimate partner versus that perpetrated by strangers, meaning when you're out and in, in the opens, in parks and in on the streets and uh, taking the public transport and jogging and going about your daily business. These are things that, in Europe, at least, we got so used to, and women, and I'm talking about uh, the women who are now reaping the benefits of that evolution, uh, had nothing to fear. I give the example of when I came to the Netherlands uh, in 1992, and I was able to see with my own eyes and experience that I wasn't being harassed. I could just go about where I wanted, and my friends were doing the same thing, and I had to ask them over and over again, aren't you afraid it's now late, uh, it's dark, uh, we are out by ourselves, aren't you afraid of being attacked? And uh, Alan, they would, they would laugh at me. They would say, mm. what are you talking about? Yes. And now this is back in 1992, and that has changed now. The obvious criticism that will be assailed against you uh, is that you are basically potentially incriminating all Muslim men. Uh, and I would imagine that you are frequently getting that uh, assertion. What is your response to that charge? Well, um, it's obvious that I'm not doing that. I'm not incriminating all Muslim men. I spell it, spell it out very clearly in the book that um, not all Muslim men are violent, let alone sexually violent against women and sexual violence against women is a universal phenomenon. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I spell it out in the book that, in fact, the worst offenders aren't even Muslim. And that if you look at these, you know, organized crimes that trade in women and children, um, the worst offenders are not Muslim at all. Uh, I spell it out in the book that the biggest consumers of child pornography, which I think is in terms of sexual offense, the worst of all offenses, the biggest consumers are in fact Western men, right? So there is no... There's absolutely no need uh, to sink into that knee jerk or if you describe a situation that is relatively new and that is escalating and that is leading to political problems and social cohesion problems on the streets of Europe, that the only response you can come up with is, oh, but you know what, Uh, don't raise these subjects because you're stigmatizing all Muslim men. That is an invitation to say, shut up. We don't want to talk about these problems. We need to look away. And I've been listening to this for at least the last 15 years. And colleagues of mine who've been trying to raise the issues of the clash of values between uh, minorities from Muslim countries coming into Europe and all the, all the tensions that we see these days, uh, they're used to being uh, dismissed this way. Their research, their arguments, um, their desperate calls to say, you know, if we address these issues while they're relatively small, we can actually work to a place where by minimizing these problems, we could also minimize the potential for the rise of extreme right-wing parties, political Islamists. Um, and in the book, uh, I, I also touch on what we are going through where you know adversaries like Russia are exploiting our own divisions to 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 divide our societies and all of these bad actors are getting an opportunity to exploit if you refuse to talk about these problems why do you suppose ion that the issue of being potentially accused of being xenophobic can eclipse the welfare of so many persons, and I'm speaking also of children. I, I think of Britain with Rotherham, um, where there was, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a town in, in South Yorkshire in the north of England, where from the 1990s on, the authorities knew that children were routinely, routinely being picked up by taxi drivers and escorted to various locations to be abused and used. And nobody wanted to broach the subject or deal with it because it involved British-Pakistani men. And so under those circumstances, the the plight of children were left in total jeopardy for fear, again, of somebody accusing the authorities even of being xenophobic. What's the remedy? Well, the remedy is to expose um, these rings, in in this case, um, of Pakistani origin, when they are organized and they're criminal and they're preying on young children because all of the stories of the grooming gangs or most of the stories we, we, we were really, we're really talking about children here and not yes. just any children these children who are uh, coming from families and neighborhoods um, that are socially challenged uh, low income um, and in a sense i think there's a class component uh, to this, if the Pakistani men were grooming upper class girls or middle class girls, I think they would have been 
an uproar and no one would have cared whether they were called racist or not. Um, so there's, I think, a class component to this issue. Again, it was also happening, by the way, to immigrant Muslim women, and much of my activism in the early years was devoted to exposing what was happening inside the homes of many, many Muslim households where girls were being forced into marriages that they didn't want. They were being abducted and taken to the countries of origin of their parents and forced to people they didn't to marry people they didn't want to marry. Uh, we saw and see the phenomenon of female genital mutilation in every country where there is a significant population from countries where that is the norm. And uh, several of the political leadership uh, ignored these problems. If I may interject just for a moment, um, I have not at the uh, start of the program uh, alluded to the fact I did on our first program together, but um, for you, the idea of female genital mutilation is not abstract. It's very real. Um, you were a victim of such an action. So I think it's important for listeners to know that it's uh, so much of what you're talking about is not theoretical, but based on your firsthand experience as a woman growing up in such a society that was um, patriarchal uh, and dominated by uh, at least a governing strain of Islamic thought. And where it is the norm to do these things. So what female genital mutilation is not seen as an aberration. It is seen as something um, something good and something right. Uh, you know, my grandmother, when she had it carried out, she was doing me a favor. She was following tradition and custom and according to her religion as well. And arranging marriages and forcing uh, kids into marriage, it's seen in the same light. And it was very, very difficult for me and other activists, by the way, to bring these things into the open because we met a wall, a solid wall of people saying, we can't talk about these things because we don't want to be regarded as racists or xenophobes. Um, they would bring stories of atonement for colonialism and for slavery and for segregation. There was always an excuse from the past. Something bad had happened in the past that was done by the ancestors of the of today's leadership. And that was the reason why they couldn't correct the atrocities of the day. Um, there's an incredulous aspect to this uh, historically, because in the United States, one was formally able to say or recognize a, a segment of any populace for criminal behavior and wrong activity. For instance, there was no shame or reluctance to say that there was obviously a Sicilian and Italian mafia. That did not incriminate all Italians. Nobody even entertained that idea. Um, the same could be true for the Irish. There was an Irish mafia. There was a Jewish mafia. And I'm quite sure I know there's a British mafia. Um, but the, it, we've reached the point where no one, no one dare um, criticize uh, for fear of being accused of assailing all the populace of a given group. How are we going to eradicate this? How does this change? I think if you are in the business of fighting crime, especially organized crime, um, you will find that it is rational for people to organize their lawless activities or the breaking of the law um, around people they trust and the people they trust the most. 
And so when you say there was an Irish mafia, there was an Italian mafia, uh, having, you know, that doesn't surprise me. Now there is a Lebanese mafia, there is uh, a Pakistani mafia, now there is a Somali mafia, there is an Afghani mafia. Why? Because when you come from those societies, the people you trust the most are your bloodline, your clan, uh, your extended family. So if you're going to have an undertaking and you know that it's against the law, you're going to do it with the people you trust the most. Why that surprises anyone, I don't know. I guess it's an issue of not wanting to know, and that takes us all back to uh, what do you do then? And when I was doing my research for this book, I would uh, talk to members of uh, authorities who would say, we don't deny that there is a problem. We acknowledge that there is a problem. We acknowledge that men who have asked for asylum, um, who have asked for protection here, who come from such countries as Syria, Pakistan, Nigeria, Somalia, Eritrea, they're committing these crimes, not all of them, but many of them. And that we are seeing now a shift in how women approach the public space and they're feeling unsafe. They acknowledge all of these facts, but then they throw their hands up in the air and say, now what? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am very, very pleased to have Ayan Hersey Ali with me regarding her latest book, which is entitled Prey. That's P-R-E-Y. You, I know, are communicating with persons in Germany. Uh, you're doing uh, German press conferences uh, regarding the book and what have you. Angela Merkel, uh, in particular, seemed very reticent to acknowledge any misdeeds on the part of uh, refugee men. Uh, is she still maintaining that staunch position or is she, is she wavering a bit? Uh, what do you sense is going on in Germany now, given that Germany is one of the key centres for this abusive behaviour towards women? Well, there's that moment um, that we were all in 2015 that we all witnessed. Obviously, if you were following events, uh, when uh, Syria broke down and large numbers of uh, people came into Europe, not all of them from Syria, by the way, and there was this um, encounter between a young girl uh, who Merkel first tried to explain to her why. Germany could not take everyone and tried to make that argument. But the child cried and there were cameras uh, on Merkel's face and Merkel showed compassion, which I think is the right response. And then the follow-up to that was, okay, let them all in. And again, when I was in Germany talking to Germans about that moment, everybody acknowledged and admired Merkel for that show of compassion, um, but they're livid at her for the thoughtlessness of what then follows, of open the doors and, you know, this, when you're an elected leader, you're saying, you know, elect me because I think I have the sense of judgment. I can make these trade-offs. I can display the sense of compassion, but I can also conduct an orderly immigration uh, process. A and that never happened. And the more people I spoke to, some of them in her government, many of them her own voters, 
uh, others voters of uh, the, the centre-left SDP, uh, they were all saying it was a thoughtless act that not only destabilized German politics, but all across Europe. The tensions between the Eastern European countries and the Northern European countries, they say, was heightened. These tensions were there, but they were heightened by that moment. And that was thoughtless, and it set everything back. And interestingly, it didn't help the immigrants at all. It created a situation where more and more people who might have ha considered options in Syria and other places thought, well, I'm going to drop everything now, not consider any other options, and head toward Germany and Europe. And so the consequence of that act of compassion and the consequences later on were largely more negative than positive. And if you're a responsible leader, I think you would come out and say, I made a mistake. I haven't had her say that. Multiculturalism, you say in your book, has become uh, sacrosanct. And you go back to the history of uh, workers' programs uh, available for Germany because they needed to, to rebuild their nation. And the assumption was is that many of these people from abroad would go back to their home countries after making a fair amount of, of money, which didn't happen. Um, family members came and increased the populace. There is, a, in the United States, uh, an ongoing debate. We go from administration to administration with the presidency with build the wall, take down the wall, build the wall, ignore the wall, back and forth, back and forth. At what point is it reasonable to say that immigration should have limits? I mean, I, 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 what I say by limits is, is as far as uh, qualifications for coming. When I came to the United States, I had to have a green card. And I had it with me at all times. I was told I had to have it carried everywhere. I'm happy to say, just like you, we're both American citizens and, and very happily and gratefully uh, in that position. But I do think that it's confusing because we are saying to some persons, uh, you know, you can just cross the border, come in, no problem. And yet others must carry a card around with them at all times. And if they don't, at least in theory, they run the risk of repercussions. There is um, a, a schism and an illogic about how we view immigration. Uh, I wonder if some of it isn't built and set around misplaced guilt, as if no one has a right to have a fence either on their own garden. Well, I think what has happened is that immigration is, in my view, a good thing. I think yes. it should be it should be possible. Um, for countries that are seeking people to come and um, enhance their economic capabilities, to bring in people who are seeking economic opportunity. That is a win-win situation and it's happened and has been happening all the time and it's the best thing ever. That type of immigration, it, it's orderly, it's well organized. It's as you described the green card. In fact, the process toward the green card when I was applying for it, I had to do an HIV test. I had to do a TBC test. There's a great deal of selection and thought that goes into it. But I also had to prove that when I came into the United States that I wasn't going to depend on welfare, on the taxpayer. Um, so that type of immigration is fantastic. But what has happened lately is that instead of having that type of conversation, 
we're having a, a symbolic one where for various reasons, sometimes because of special interests, sometimes because of ideological interest, um, the rational conversation is shut down. And anybody who tries to reopen that is demonized as xenophobic and racist um, and so on. And the special interest groups, they moralize, they virtue signal because they don't want that to stop. But what gets ignored is that, in fact, these large movement of people that we are seeing has nothing to do with immigration. The real story in Africa, in the Middle East, in South Asia, the real story is that some of these nation states are actually either completely broken down or they're breaking down. They have very young populations. Transport is cheap. We have now a means of communication where a relative in Canada or the US or England can say to a relative in India or Pakistan or God knows where and say, you know, just drop everything and come and join us. And there's this smuggler that you can call and I will send you the money through remittances. Or, and so then there's this kind of contagion where instead of having people work on developing their own economies and their own countries, and I think there is a responsibility for the rich countries to help the poor countries. I'm that kind of person. And I say that help is self-interest, rightly understood. Those are the sorts of conversations we should be having. What we do now in the West is do exactly what you are describing, which is wall up, wall down. Uh, you're a racist, you're not a racist. And, and we're having this symbolic knee-jerk um, stuff that is in many ways uh, it's damaging it's idiotic and how do you come out of that for that you need leadership you need the mainstream mainstream leaders to come out to come together and to say let's figure this out but it's the process of figuring things out right now that is under assault the people who make these attempts they're the ones who get you know kicked out of political parties newsrooms universities um, and, and that's not an external problem. It's not the Islamists who are doing this to us or the Russians or the Chinese. They may exploit that situation, but we're doing it to ourselves. This is Watching America. My guest is Ayan Hersey Ali. Her latest book is Prey. That's P-R-E-Y, as in the object uh, of a predator. Uh, I want to ask you about the process of writing this book. For many writers, and I'm quite sure this uh, has applied to you, there are moments of self-awareness when you just write a phrase or you write a line, and in some instances, perhaps moved emotionally, where you say to yourself, this is the key reason I'm writing this. Did you have a moment like that? And what was the section? Well, the moments I had were actually the opposite. Um, and for months and months, it was I was looking for reasons not to write the book. Why is that? I, That's interesting. Well, I thought, well, I've made enough enemies. Um, I, I shouldn't be the one. I'm not in Europe anymore. Um, I shouldn't be writing about this. And then, uh, you know, how it is when you're writing a book, you, you start mm -hmm. 
soliciting more research, more stories, uh, interviews. Mm-hmm. I would do an interview. I'd be outraged. I would think, yes, I have to go on. I've got to do this. I've got to do it for Nicola. Uh, one of the girls uh, I've interviewed in the book who describes her daily life to me, I get very outraged by that. I think I've got to do it. And then I, I think I wake up in the morning. I think, no, 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 no. Somebody like Nicola should do it. And then I would start looking for someone like that and say, why don't you do it? And they would talk to me about all their fears and the consequences for them. And and on and on it went, this struggle. I talked to my husband about it. Uh, I talked to my friends about this. And I think ultimately we decided, and, and this is a collective family decision, yes. It's very clear in reading your book, Ion, that your intention is not to primarily condemn, but to preserve and save. There's a distinct difference in motivation here. Um, One sense is that there's no glee or delight in you bringing to light the the matters that are occurring uh, in Europe against women, nor in North America, presumably. Not at all. Let me ask you about one other thing. Let me uh, tell you this, Alan. There's nothing in mm-hmm. that book to delight in. The victims and what happens to them is its just the kind of tra- tragedy that sends you straight into depression. There's nothing, no delight to take in that young men who are fleeing civil war and poverty are themselves engaging. They've been hurt. They have been subjected to all sorts of humiliations. They have gone through this terrible journey to get to their destinations, their countries of destination, or their destination countries. And there is absolutely no delight to take in them having to be um, sent to trial, to be prosecuted, to be imprisoned because they have committed injustices against other human beings. There's nothing to take delight in. But when I spoke to some of the other immigrants, and you'll see those um, names in the book, uh, immigrants like myself, we made our way to different parts of Europe and the West, and we were able to build lives for ourselves that are rewarding. And so ultimately, I would say the one thing that kept me moving and keeps me moving is it's gratitude. I'm just so grateful. I was so grateful to the Dutch for mm. everything that they had done for me. And, and, and allow me to to interject that you were a member of their parliament. Uh, not everyone in the audience will know that till I bring it to their attention. Continue, please. Yeah. So when I came to Holland, and again, I described those scenes where the streets, the public transport, um, the apartment galleries, I remember just marveling all the time at how safe I felt. And if only we could keep things, if we could preserve that safety, that sense that as a woman, as a girl, as a child, regardless of what happens behind closed doors, but if you are outside, you are safe. If we could maintain that, if we could preserve that and extend it to other countries and other societies, that would be awesome. But let's just preserve at this point what we have. That's what kept me going. Ayan Hersi Ali, your voice is so important. And when we hear it in particular on this program, uh, we are delighted. 
thank you for being a part of Watching America today. Her latest book is entitled Pray. That's P-R-E-Y. And again, I can't thank you enough. Blessings to you. And I hope that with your next work, yet again, you'll join us because we certainly will look forward to it. Alan, thank you so very much for all of those kind words. Thank you for what you do and a wonderful conversation yet again. Maybe I think too much, oh, maybe I think too much. Maybe I think too much, oh, maybe I think too much. Maybe I think too much, eh, maybe I think too much. Maybe I think too much, oh. Now we turn our attention to some other thoughts. Thoughts about thinking itself. Is it possible to think too much? What would we do if we were told not to think? What would it be like? Well, my next guest can tell us. In January 2018, while chaperoning her daughter's school ice skating trip, a careening third grade boy knocked over my guest today. He knocked her off her feet, causing Dr. Craig to come crashing down on her skull against the rather unforgiving ice. As a result of not knowing her address or that day's particular date, she was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with mild traumatic brain injury, and she was advised to seek brain rest for three months. In other words, she was to refrain from reading, writing, considering, evaluating, assessing, and analysing everything for 90 days. Now, that would be difficult for most, but certainly no less so for a professor of philosophy. From Plato to Descartes, Dr. Gregg found herself reconsidering dualism, the concept that the mind and body are essentially separate entities. It was Descartes who told us, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Well, suppose you think less. Are you less? And are you perhaps in some way no more? Please welcome to Watching America, Dr. Megan Craig. Welcome, Dr. Craig. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you here. Let me just give a, a few more details about your background. You're an associate professor of philosophy at Stony Brook University, and you teach courses in phenomenology and aesthetics, which in my book makes you a triple A. You're an academic, you're an author, and an artist. What a wonderful combination. I'd, I'd just like to begin by having you relate. Uh, I've kind of did a synopsis of what happened, but you, you suffered a, a brain injury, and you were told, of all things, you were not supposed to think. How, how did you endure that as a philosopher? Yes, well, that's right. I mean, when I got the diagnosis and I was told there was nothing really to do except to practice brain rest, it was really the first time that I'd heard that phrase. And I knew the next question coming was going to be something about what do you do or how do you make a living? And the whole situation just struck me as so absurd in that moment. And that was really the beginning point of negotiating how, what it means to be on brain rest and how to think about your brain and resting your brain while also trying to follow these doctor's orders to stop thinking any strenuous thoughts whatsoever um, and just rest. Did it scare you when you could not recall the day and you could not recall your address immediately after the accident? It did. So, you know, I think that the for many people, the symptoms of a concussion appear somewhat gradually. It's not an all-at-once 
realization. And for me, and I think this is true of lots of people, the immediate impulse is just to try to get up. The impact is so jarring and it's such a bizarre kind of feeling to hit your head in that way. There's, there must be some kind of survival instinct to just get up. So it was not until really the next morning when I went about trying to fill out a very basic form for one of my daughters and realized I had no idea how to fill in these blanks that were literally name, date. I just had this sense that something was so deeply wrong and that I wasn't the agent who I took myself to be. Uh, a female friend of mine has studied philosophy both in the United States and abroad, and, and I know that she went on to face brain surgery. And I can only think of few greater demands placed on anybody for bravery than to have one's sense of self uh, assaulted by the idea of, of having to have brain surgery when you are a philosopher and, and given to thinking. So, Dr. Craig, you know how thought and the ability to think is inextricably connected to one's sense of identity. How did you handle the loss of sense of identity? Well, you know, so much of my work in philosophy, and particularly in phenomenology, has been around topics of embodiment. You know, I think that I, as a philosopher, and kind of aware of the degree to which I'm, I am asked to be a thinking, articulate, speaking person professionally all the time, I, I spend a lot of that time thinking about the body. And so I as a philosopher, have been very sort of suspect of accounts that would reduce human beings to thinking machines or describe the humanness of the human in terms of either language or intelligence or, or rationality. So I think for me, one of the really troubling things in the wake of the concussion was kind of reckoning with the degree to which the part of me that is the thinking part and the seat of my memory is actually more important than I had allowed it to be up to that moment. And I wouldn't say that that means that it's everything or that I've, you know, I've sort of adopted some kind of total reverse position. But it really made me feel that I have not to this point taken seriously enough the, the crucial role of the brain in making the world a livable place and making making life in very, very, very basic ways livable. The the upshot of that was a kind of overwhelming sense of um of empathy for people who have had so much so many worse kinds of accidents, um, but also different varieties of mental illnesses and brain disorders and consecutive con concussions and dementia sort of opened a window on a whole world of struggle that I have always known about, but I felt suddenly connected to in a, in a very different way. You write uh, and have referenced the fact that you, at one time in your life, used to tend and care for an elderly woman who had Alzheimer's. And you cite the example of you would go to the house each day and you'd have to reintroduce yourself to this lady because uh, she would not recognize who you were. And suddenly you felt in accord with her. Um, how has that 
held for your future concept of of how you may age and all of us may age? Does it does it instill a greater fear because you've already experienced something akin to this at an earlier stage? You know, I'm not sure if I would describe it as fear, but um, certainly when I was in high school caring for this woman, a large part of my job was just to make sure that she didn't wander off or harm herself. And her husband was there, and he was completely with it and able to recall all of the details of everything from his life. And so I think at that point, I really felt that it was so tragic for him. So a a sort of shift in me now is thinking back on that experience and, and realizing, you know, that even though she couldn't really express the breadth of her own situation or her feelings about her situation, that there is something so painful in that kind of loss of memory for the person who is losing it and the kind of isolation of not being able to connect or to speak about things that you love. That's the part of it that, um, you know, it makes, again, it's not really fear with respect to my future self, but uh, gives a greater sense of urgency to the self I am now who has access to those memories still. Let's go back to day two, day three, day four, etc., moving along uh, with your recovery. When you were told to basically take a brain rest and you got over the, the, the humorous idea of the concept, which was you know quite extraordinary, one doesn't normally get told to take a brain rest, were you able to do it, and by what means were you, as much as possible, able to employ a, de- a dedication of some sort, at least initially, to that uh, to that goal? I found it so difficult. I mean, I think I was successful on the technology front, so really not using the computer, not looking at my phone, and that was valuable just in and of itself as a practice and has changed how I relate to those devices, I think, forever going forward. But the, you know, the reading and the thinking and just all of the various kinds of brain functioning that needs to happen in order to get two kids out the door in the morning and drive a car. I mean, I just constantly felt that I was really failing at this exercise. I think one thing that's so tricky about it is that the more you the more you fret about it or the more you try to analyze whether it's going well or not, the more you feel the recovery extending like this kind of spool unraveling in front of you. Was there any just recreational things? I mean, if, if, and I don't mean this with judgment, but if, if I want to exercise in mindlessness, all I have to do is stay up late and watch uh, a, a knife uh, infomercial, you know, where they sell these like multiple knife <laughs> kits and you, you've got the samurai, you've got the, you know, and I just go into orbit and just it's just movement. Like Gore Vidal used to talk about television being moving wallpaper, where you can have that ex- experience sometimes with, with watching infomercials. Did you do anything like that? I mean, did did you just you know, play with a <laughs> a ball of yarn or something? Well, so a little bit. You know, I just had these excruciating headaches, especially if I tried to watch anything on a screen or if I tried to read. And mm. I, I think that was related to the fact that 
something about my vision was just not quite aligned. So there was just a lot of effort to get words and pictures to be still enough to be able to, to deal with them. However, like you said, I am an artist. And in the same time period, I had an exhibition that was coming up that was meant to be an exhibition of paintings. And I found it physically impossible to paint in this time period. So I actually turned to sewing and made a body of sewn work for that exhibition. And the sewing was, I think, the kind of thing you're describing as sort of meditative mindlessness um, that really didn't require very much physical movement. And once I had started, I could basically continue without having to, to focus in the same way I would need to for painting. Dr. Craig, you really have expertise in the realm in particular of a particular branch of philosophy that addresses, as you've mentioned, phenomenology. Phenomenology is essentially um, how one perceives reality in relation to self and objects and, and other things. So one thinks of Edmund Husserl and Hegel and Heidegger, if I remember correctly. Um, mm-hmm. What impact did this experience have on your self-concept in relation to the outside world and, and objects about you? It's a tricky question, in part because the the experience of the concussion entailed so many feelings of isolation. And I think that's not uncommon in a whole variety of injuries, but particularly with respect to brain injuries or anything that disrupts the, the mechanisms of thinking and recall. You know, I would say that my experience of, of things in the world was pretty heavily limited in the immediate weeks and even first couple of months in the recovery in the sense that I had such little trust in my own maneuvering, my own mental maneuvering, that there's a kind of diminishment of the world in that situation. I think of it in a way like if you have a toothache or you have some other injury that you could locate, it can feel like everything is located in that, in that pain. And although the concussion wasn't the same kind of acute pain, that feeling of being located in your brain was intensely, uh, intensely affecting for a fluid and easy relationship with the rest of the world. Have you ever seen Stanley Kubrick's film 2001 Space Odyssey? It's been a long time, but yes. And you remember Hal the computer. And there's a point mm-hmm. where Hal has to be uh, basically disassembled. And you hear him singing at various times and um, the, the conveyance is that he's losing his consciousness. So you have him initially singing, Daisy, Daisy, oh, what, and it becomes, Daisy, Daisy, oh, what a girl. Did you feel anything similar to that? I mean, I've spoken at the outset about feeling alien to oneself. Did, did you experience that? And, and with that, uh, perhaps have even a fascination with it? Yeah, that's such a poignant set of scenes. I think, yes, in some ways. You know, I think that one of the things that stood out for me and that I have hence thought a lot about is the phenomenon of forgetting. So... We forget things all the time. You forget your keys or you forget somebody's name or 
I'll be looking for something in a text and I forget what page it's on. But I was having very different experiences of forgetting right after the concussion, which were not kind of a lack of recall, like there's something there and I can't find it. But it was like encountering a real blind spot where you've sort of gone off a cliff. There's nothing there where you thought there was something. So, I mean, that's the way that I sort of think of that experience of distortion. Like you're just singing along and then suddenly there's this space of distortion. And that happened frequently at first and much less frequently over time. Having those repeated experiences really made me question the kind of machinery of my thinking in a way that I hadn't done before. And, you know, not only feel a kind of respect for it, that it's working at all, but also that intimation that things really could have gone differently, or it could still in the future go differently, that those black those blacked out areas or blind spots could grow or could take over. Um, I think this is part of what was distressing is that I, I am so much more in need of those connections to all of those things, all of those words and memories and places. And it's like a whole rooted network of associations that you don't, you don't really need to dwell on so long as they're in place. And as soon as they're not, the realization that you are so much more all of those things than you thought is a kind of very destabilizing. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and I have the great privilege of speaking with Dr. Megan Craig. And she is the writer of a work called A Philosopher on Brain Rest. And we are examining just that. She had an injury, a head injury, where she was told by physicians that she had to take a brain rest, a very tall and difficult order for somebody whose occupation is directly related to thinking extensively and deeply. I'm going to ask a question. I don't mean it in the popular sense. I think you'll understand exactly how I mean it. I'm going to ask you about yourself. After this experience... Who is Dr. Megan Craig? Are you mind, spirit, body, a combination? And obviously I don't mean that you're a mother and a spouse, etc. Who have you, if you have arrived at, who is your sense of self? Who is Dr. Megan Craig? Well, I guess the short answer is I, I really don't know, and I know less than I thought I knew before. I love that <laughs> answer. Maybe that- that's the basis of Socratic wisdom right there. Yes, well said. <laughs> Honest. I love that, the candor. Well, what have you learned? Uh, let's conclude with that. What, what is the key thing that you have learned about yourself and perhaps even others through this experience? Well, there's a very practical and uh, benign takeaway, which is that we should all be wearing helmets when we're ice skating. <laughs> Um, But I think this experience has taught me about a form of vulnerability that I think it's very important to talk about and to encourage dialogue about. Because when anybody suffers an injury, and especially an injury that's not visible from the outside, there is a tendency to, you know, to think of recovery as something that moves from point A to point B or, you know, even visibly moves from the 
the moment of having a scrape or a cut or a cast to the moment when that's no longer present. But I think this whole experience has underscored for me how crucial it is that we talk about our vulnerabilities together, that we're honest about them, and mm. that we make room for all different kinds of recovery, even recoveries that doesn't reconcile in something like full recovery. Because there's a lot of people walking around with all kinds of injury and we just don't, we never know the depth of it. We never know. We never know what that really means. I've been speaking with Dr. Megan Craig. She is the writer of a work entitled A Philosopher on Brain Rest, which is the account of her sustaining a head injury and thereby being told by physicians that she was not to think and indeed take just that, a brain rest. Not an easy thing to do when your basic core for work is reading, writing, considering, evaluating, assessing, and, and analyzing practically everything. I had asked her, not in a literal term, but a self-awareness term, if she knew who she was. And she very candidly and honestly, and I think most of us would perhaps concur, in our own experience, she said, not really. Well, this I do know, Dr. Craig. You're a precious voice, a candid voice, and a great guest, and you have honored us with your time, and I thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been so nice to talk with you. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Oh, no. I bumped my head. Oh, no. I bumped my head. It really hurts. I bumped my head. Oh, no. You've been I listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.